Hey guys, welcome back to The Courier Weekly. I'm Courier's Editorial Director, Danny Giacopelli. Today on the show, we're with two founders, one in London, the other in New York, who are trying to grow companies in industries that traditionally have been a bit tired and uninspired. We'll find out why Mike Mayer and his team at Windmill decided to take on the cutthroat world of air conditioning, of all things, and why it's a super interesting sector. First, we talk pain. Here in London, a company called Lick Home launched with what seemed like the worst possible timing, the day the UK went into lockdown. But the situation quickly changed as remote workers looked at their shabby new office environments and decided to do some spring cleaning. Paint and wallpaper became a hot commodity. The global paint and wallpaper market is really big, about $93 billion. And in the US, well-branded, digitally focused, direct-to-consumer paint brands aren't exactly new. Recent years have seen the rise of companies like Backdrop and Claire. But Lick's co-founder, Lucas London, saw an opportunity to go beyond paint and look at home decor more broadly, which may be worth $200 billion in Europe alone. Here's Lucas. So I joined Airtasker, which was a marketplace to find gardeners and handymen. It was an Australian business and was there for two years. We started to centralize the team back to Sydney. We had had huge success in the UK and I was leading international expansion. And Sam and I just didn't want to move back to Sydney. I think it might be something we'll definitely regret because it's a wonderful way of life out there. But uh, after spending about 350 hours on a plane, it just wasn't the move that was right for either of us. And we had this idea to start Lick that we were really excited about and felt it was the right time to do that. And it was really that introduction to decorating while we were at Airtasker. We just became very aware that you had this absolutely enormous industry, in particular in Europe, that there was predominantly online. So you have a huge demographic of an audience that's online, that's engaged, that's young, that's growing, that's into decorating interior design and color. Yet customers tend to then put their phones in their pockets and go into a hardware store on the weekend to buy the product. And it's one of the few industries that's just still offline and not for good reason. It's not like customers are having a great experience online. So we just thought we could solve that problem and it was an exciting one given the size of the market and how sort of wonderful the industry is from, you know, from a content and engagement point of view. Was there one data point that really jumped out that you said, oh wow, you know, this is an underserved market? I started my career as an analyst in a hedge fund, so we kind of really dug deep into the problem and why that was the case. Because the one thing that was definitely key was that sort of qualitative feedback of that resonated with everyone. The problem and the frustration of walking around a DIY store and having no brands that resonated with them, having too many choices. Basically, everyone had invisible time on a Saturday in a hardware store. So there was definitely that reason, but we couldn't understand why that was the case at first. It became very obvious that actually it was more of a, a structural problem that, in particular, paint manufacturers were relying on third-party retailers as their biggest customer and didn't have a direct relationship with the customer, so just weren't looking to solve that. And the only companies that were that were these very high-end home decor brands that sort of alienated a big part of the demographic. It was there we really then started to do a number of surveys and, and started to understand, you know, the frequency of people decorating and how they were decorating and the frustrations. It became overwhelmingly obvious that it was definitely a problem to solve. But I think to your initial question, especially in the funding round, every time we would explain what we were trying to do, everyone said the same thing, you know, God, I hate going to this store on the weekend and I don't know why I'm doing it. We knew that we were onto something. 
And, you know, Lick launched the day the UK went into lockdown. We obviously know the company survived because, you know, you're here talking to us. And, and I know it survived partly because of the convergence of a few different trends that you guys just happened to be, you know, in the right place at the right time in some manner of speaking. But were you at first just like, oh my God, because you must have thought, you didn't know that yet, that, you know, all these people would be <laughs> decorating their homes and kind of, you know, ordering things online. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was definitely a nice distraction launching on that day. But, you know, we didn't obviously plan. We just went as quick as we could. And that was the day that happened. The truth is, is at first we just we were in complete panic. And I emailed all shareholders saying, you know, don't worry, we don't plan to spend a, a penny in marketing. And we plan to go into sort of lockdown and see how long we can last to get through this because we had no visibility. And we were quite early in seeing that because a very small part of our supply chain was in China. So they just stopped answering the phone. And we, we started becoming very aware that it was pretty serious. But then very quickly <laughs> that twisted and we then, you know, emailed shareholders saying, no, no, <laughs> we're going for it. Because what we saw was a number of things. One, we saw people bored at home wanting to decorate. And that was obviously, you don't really sort of build a business off that, but it was a great way we could get a good start. But most importantly, what we really saw was we saw online adoption go from what was about 4% to, well, 100% because people didn't go into stores. And then we saw the focus on the home increase because of remote working. So both of those dynamics were definitely here to stay in some form. So we saw just an acceleration of our thesis, really. It was great in many ways. In others, it was challenging because our supply chain really slowed down and really grinds a halt. And we obviously didn't forecast the level of demand that we got. And we also being very careful with our working capital. So we didn't invest in a huge amount of stock because we had very short lead time. Lots of positives and we're now sort of back up and running properly and definitely taking advantage of these new circumstances, but, you know, a huge amount of luck in that timing. You guys raised some money a couple months later in August, three million pounds from Felix Capital. And, you know, for years, the kind of direct-to-consumer playbook has been, you know, launch a cool brand that meets a demand, raise a load of cash from VCs, spend ungodly sums of money on marketing, maybe not worry about making a profit and then exit to some larger company that could gobble you up and kind of do something with you. Has that all been changed by COVID? And I'm not saying you're following that path, but I mean, has that kind of time-honored path been changed? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question and how that DC market has changed. Because I started a hedge fund, I really learned what an investable public company needs to look like. And then I spent the last six or so years working in startups, learning how you can use venture capital to accelerate and scale but also the massive pitfalls with that, you know, valuations going too high, too much money on paid acquisition. And it was really Sam's and I passion to create a sustainable high margin business and a profitable one, but definitely use venture to scale. And we didn't want to get into this issue of becoming well, really a D2C paint brand. That the big problem with that is creating a business where the customer doesn't differentiate you from its competitors and you're all acquiring customers online digitally. And we saw, we've seen you know, some of the issues that's happened in, for instance, the mattress markets. And we've even seen businesses like Away and, and other DTC businesses sort of move into other verticals. So it was our desire to really create a home decor brand from day one. That starts with paint. That starts with paint because it's the color that influences a lot of the other decisions you make around the house. And that definitely resonated with Felix. And I think if we had gone out to the funding round and tried to raise as a DTC paint brand, I don't think we would have 
a huge amount of success. So built into the deck was literally, we're going to become a platform for all sorts of home decor. Yeah, we were sort of made.com for home decor, we would say. You know, definitely the UK venture capital landscape, which is sort of more reserved, I guess, than the US, it feels a fearful of D2C. And it made sense to us to build a multi-vertical brand. So we raised 850 from some really smart investors end of last year, and, and we were close to running a profitable company. We wouldn't need a huge amount of money to get there, but we decided to sort of accelerate the funding round and bring forward that raise and work with Felix as sort of the perfect partners in our eyes because the market dynamics meant it was such an interesting opportunity and the kind of growth opportunities like multi-verticals in Europe meant it made sense to us rather than just let's raise some money and let's buy a huge amount more customers. Has the market conditions made you use that money differently or think about using that money differently? Whereas, you know, back in the good old days, you would just blow it on 50,000 ping pong tables or something and now you're putting some away for a rainy day or no? I'm definitely sort of petrified of building a business where you are raising money to pay wages or to buy more customers. For us, the most important thing is to build a brand that consumers love and a user experience that consumers love, especially in an industry where they're used to quite a negative experience. You know, we just feel that that's the most important point for us rather than like tracking the revenue line. And that's what's been, I guess, most successful about our launch is that the way our community has taken to the products and the brand and the user experience in general is definitely showcases that, you know, if we keep on how we are, we'll get in a good place. And I think, you know, you've seen how the likes of Gymshark have done that so exceptionally well, obviously, in the, in the press at the moment focusing on building that community rather than just a sort of a race. What are those adjacent categories that you might be moving into immediately? I mean, I know you might want to become a, a platform that has tons of different product categories, but what would be the first beyond wallpaper and, and paint? Is it wall art? Is it sofas? Is it something else? So we, we tend to think of our spaces post-construction of pre-furniture. So we're currently focused on walls and we'll be launching blinds and window coverings very soon. So that's our main next category. And it's an interesting space because we don't have a key sort of pipeline of timings of when we launch new verticals. And that's partly because, you know, paint alone is an absolutely enormous industry and wall coverings sort of equally so. So we're starting to focus on those three and then we'll see that there's definitely other opportunities for flooring or ironmongery that we might look at in the future. What are some of the the hardest parts of running a brand like yours? Stock was definitely a challenge and that's obviously the kind of biggest learning out of this experience. It's just a huge amount of commitments to be honest and you know at Airtasker I had exposure to that because I was hired as the GM, so I was building the UK business and because of the time difference meant I had full autonomy. So it was, you know, like my own business, but you're all in really. And lucky I've got a, a great co-founder that's sort of hugely supportive and great to work with. But it's never to be underestimated if you're not building, you know, especially if you take venture capital money and you know your sort of targets of what you're trying to achieve dramatically change from being maybe a lifestyle company whatever that means. But it's a yeah, huge amount of pressure and huge amount of work. It's a work-life balance and a mental health thing. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true, especially in these circumstances. So lucky we're living in a time where we're more aware of that as a balance. We have a set number of holiday days that we encourage. We have very relaxed environments of taking as many as you want. We encourage people to take, take a few days off after sort of sort of stressful periods or 
and trying to be very aware of that, you know, remote working first, trying to encourage a place where we're, I guess it's not a sprint and it's a marathon and how we build this business and how we all enjoy the journey as well, I think is hugely important. But it's really tricky because it's a huge amount of work and with remote working, because it's hard to know how employees are in this circumstance. But um, yeah, that's, a, that's definitely a key focus. Is there anything that you wish you knew before you launched this thing? I mean, obviously nobody would have foreseen COVID. Is there anything else integral to the company and the business model itself that you've learned in the past few months that you wish you knew? Definitely there's not one point, I guess. Building a business seems to just be constant problem solving every day, all day. It's been extremely smooth in terms of how the launch has gone and and how well we've grown. But that's hiding the fact that every day there's a huge amount of problems you need to solve and and get around. So it's been thousands of things, of of little learnings that have been constant throughout this period. I've actually got a, in the background, I've got a can on my shelf above the fireplace. And it was our first can that arrived from China. It looks like it's been run over by a truck. And, you know, that's a great example. When we first received our cans from the supplier, they were all uh, destroyed on transit. So we had to very quickly work with the supplier to learn how to transport them safely and not have any damage. I mean, that's an example that happened a thousand times over the last, you know, six, nine months. So uh, the biggest learning is to how to solve those small problems and how to keep going and not let them trip you up. Speaking of behind you, I mean, it seems like your wall is quite white. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're not using your own product. Uh, <laughs> or is that is that your product? Actually, to be honest, like this wall changes color pretty much once a week. My fiance is not, hasn't been too pleased. <laughs> so yeah, we've painted a huge amount over the, the last nine months, but I keep repainting over it because to hide the patches. Yeah, I think we're, we're set for another change soon. But if you go to my other bedrooms, it's all very colorful. Lucas London there from Lick Home. From paint to air conditioning. Mike Mayer and his brother Danny saw that the air conditioning market was a bit old and tired. So they teamed up with their longtime friend Ryan Filia, whose family manufactured, installed, and serviced AC units in New York City for more than 60 years. The result was a new direct-to-consumer company that sells beautifully designed, eco-friendly AC units. The brand is called Windmill. When they launched this summer, they had a waitlist of more than 7,500 people, and they sold through their 2020 inventory in the first week. Mike, the co-founder and CEO, joined me from his home in New York. So my older brother and one of our mutual friends, we had been kicking around business ideas for quite some time. None of them stuck out. You know, it wasn't like, oh, this is the idea that we have to roll with until my brother moved apartments in the city in in New York and he was going up and I was helping him move and we were going up the stairs and you know moving in in New York City is is horrible but to make matters even worse we got up to the apartment and there was this really ugly old yellowing window AC sitting in the window it was as bad as it gets and we were just kind of like how do we even go about taking this out recycling it getting another one And luckily, Ryan, uh, who I mentioned, our our mutual friend, has been in air conditioning for many, many years. His family started an air conditioning business back in the 60s. So we called Ryan and we were like, hey, here's this problem. What do we do? He sent two of his professional technicians over. They hooked my brother up with a couple nice units. They installed it. They brought the old one back. And we were just kind of thinking, like, how do we provide that 
experience for other people who don't have Orion, you know, who don't know an expert. And then it just kind of like literally after that day, I had lunch with my brother and we were just like, this is it. This is the thing we've been looking for this whole time. And we were off to the races. Like literally we went to Ryan's factory that his family's been working with for decades and we pitched them the idea and then we were off. And now, I mean, obviously Ryan, he was still heavily involved in his family business, which did this for a living, right? Yeah. I mean, at the time, Ryan was full-time managing his family business with his brother and his parents are still involved and, and were at the time. But yeah, I mean, that was his source of income. And then slowly but surely, I stole him away from his family business. And, you know, now we're uh, cranking full-time on Windmill. Although, you know, they have a warehouse in Manhattan, which is incredible to have that infrastructure already set up. I work out of there. We fulfill orders out of there for Windmill. And so we kind of share the space and his family has been very generous with all of their infrastructure and space. And now when you guys decided to go into this area, you know, it's such an unusual and, you know, some people might say boring area to go into, right? It's not this like super sexy thing, which also makes it attractive because, you know, I suppose there's not many modern players in the air conditioning space, right? Almost none. I mean, depending on who you ask, I mean, I think it's sexy, um, but, you know, I think if you think, if you ask somebody else, they're like, oh, this isn't like Instagram or like, you know, another TikTok or something that's going to like blow up and have like billions of users. It's a complex piece of machinery. It has its challenges, but those challenges create a moat around this category where, you know, to your point, there aren't a lot of competitors. This isn't something where you can just call up a factory from Alibaba and source socks or, you know, a t-shirt and like start a clothing brand. I mean, that's more, you know, commoditized now with Alibaba and Shopify. But for something like this, you have to have the infrastructure, not just the factory, like warehousing space and technicians and trucks. I mean, there are complex processes and systems built around a complex product. But, you know, that's why I think it's sexy because it's hard to get into. But once you're in, there's a lot of opportunity. You guys launched this summer with a quite a large wait list of people and you, you blew through all of your inventory within like a week or two, right? Yeah, we did. We actually had them reserved in like a couple hours and then we cut it off because we were just like, you know, we're not going to handle that many this year given everything with COVID and just such a weird year. But yeah, I mean, we had almost 10,000 people on our wait list very quickly. And then from that, you know, we didn't do any paid advertising or anything just from the wait list we, we sold out. And how does it work with, you know, obviously your your co-founders coming with, you know, generational experience in this industry, how does that help and or, you know, hurt what you're doing? I mean, are there kind of like bad habits you brought in from decades of the air conditioning world? Or I mean, or are you, obviously you're taking a different point of view on things. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly we are taking a, a different point of view. I mean, we're refreshing the design and the function of a machine that's been around for a very, very long time. The thing is with Ryan's family and their institutional knowledge, we did leverage that to not make you know stupid mistakes. There are parts of this thing that work and we didn't wanna reinvent the parts that were doing their job and that were functional. And so we used, there's a couple of professional installers that work at Ryan's family business and we used them all the way back when we were prototyping. And we ran prototypes by them, I mean, a bunch of them. They picked it apart. Without that knowledge, we would have made some dumb mistakes. We probably still have. <laughs> you can't start a business, and especially a business like this, without making mistakes. I mean, that's part of the entrepreneurial journey. But having, I don't want to call it a safety net, but you know, having the reassurance 
backed by you know years and years of experience in this industry and, and product category certainly was helpful. What mistakes have you made? I mean, you just kind of pointed out there that you probably have made mistakes since you guys launched relatively recently. I mean, what's gone wrong? I make mistakes every day. I mean, you know, I don't think things out of our control, you know, went wrong, at least to our plan. You know, it's hard to say, like looking back, what went completely haywire because, you know, I just like my personal philosophy is like you have to trip up to move forward. Honestly, there are just like so many little things along the way, decisions you make with a vendor on, you know, a certain color. And it's like, wait, that looks terrible. Like, why did we pick that? Let's go back and pick another color. And we did that many times. I mean, during the prototyping process, we're like, hey, let's put the screw hole here versus here. And, you know, it's like, oh, wait, no, let's like change that back. Those are very small examples. And I'm, I'm sure there are bigger ones, but it's the process. And like, that's how you learn. And um, that's how a product gets made. And that's how a good product gets made. I mean, you can't, nobody does this. I mean, we've been doing this for two years. Nobody can start a business like this and look back and say, oh yeah, everything went well. Or, you know, we made all these perfect decisions. It's just not reality. Previous to when you guys launched, I mean, the vast majority, I mean, you know, 99.999% of, of air conditioning units and products, are they all made in factories in, you know, nameless large cities in China? Or are they made in Germany and Switzerland and kind of these, you know, very small Alpine towns? I mean, where are they made? <laughs> yeah, totally. No, they are almost all, and I think all window ACs are made in the same sort of region in China which from our perspective is, is great. I mean, the, the supply chain is so consolidated, you can get you know, parts quicker. If they were made in Germany, a lot of the parts still would be coming from China. You know, the supply chain just gets longer and longer as you wait to ship parts. And you know, the one thing I'll say too is, we have a really close relationship with our factory because Ryan's family 15 years ago taught them how to make air conditioners. I mean, they were making air conditioning parts, but Ryan's family went in, their engineers went in and like set up this factory to make air conditioning uh, units for their business. And so there's just like really tight relationship. And, you know, I've gone there now four or five times for windmill and, you know, I feel pretty close to them as people. And it's just really special to have that relationship. We went to other factories near where our factory is, some large names. We had one meeting with a large factory. We told him what we wanted to do. We pitched the idea. He got so excited and he's like, okay, what do you want to change? And he put up a picture of the unit that they make you know, some generic unit that you could find on Amazon or whatever. He laughed at us. We said, you know, we want to make these rounded edges. We want to have this display like auto fade after 60 seconds. We, you know, we want our vents here and we want the intake grill to look like this. And he just laughed and said, you will never find somebody to make these changes for you. You know, Ryan and I looked at each other and kind of smiled and it was just like, okay, uh, sure. You know, I, I think the, the point is that you can go take a, a unit from one of these factories off the shelf and make a couple modifications and stick a new name on it. But at the end of the day, if you want to transform the aesthetic of these machines, like you have to have a close-knit relationship. So, I mean, we're, we're very happy that uh, these units are made in, in the same place and we're very fortunate to have a, a close factory relationship. Where is the factory? It's in Southwest China. All right, cool. What would you say to people who, you know, air conditioners have come under scrutiny, obviously for their you know, the sustainability creds. I mean, it's kind of this like catch 22 where it's really hot outside. So you need an air conditioner, which contributes to global warming, which means it's hotter outside. So you need an air conditioner and it's kind of this endless loop. I mean, how do you uh, reconcile that? I guess launching this kind of product in an era when the sustainability creds of companies are extremely important. Totally. That's something that we talked about a lot 
when we were starting this business, you know, Danny, my, my older brother and co-founder and I uh, and Ryan, I mean, we sat down and said, like, we don't want to do this unless we're thinking about the environment. The reality is, yeah, air, air conditioning isn't great for the environment. If you think about what the current players are doing, they're not thinking about it at all. We sat down and said, what, what are the things we can do? First, can we use a refrigerant? That's a responsible choice. It's called R32 versus 410A, which is not good for the environment. You know, that's, that's one thing we said, okay, we're going to do this for all of our, our units. And then the second thing is making it smart. If you turn on your air conditioner and forget to turn it off when you leave your house and you're gone all day at work or you go on a weekend trip and it's, and it's just running, that's pretty bad. So by having an app connected to it that actually works and is reliable, you can check and, and turn it off if you forget. You know, I have this in my apartment and I've done that several times in a month and it's saved you know, a decent chunk of, of energy. The other thing that I'll, I'll say is that when refrigerant leaks into landfills, it's, it's the number one contributor to global warming. And so we wanna make it super easy for customers to find a recycling facility near them. So if you go to our website and you go to windmillair.com slash recycling, you can actually type, like put in your, your zip code and it'll find a facility near you. The other thing is in New York City, they have a program that they'll actually come and pick up old AC units and, and recycle it. So that's you know pretty awesome that, that New York City does that. And I would encourage everybody to do that with, with their old units versus just like throwing them out. The last thing I'll say on this front is we buy carbon offsets for every AC that's, that's bought to offset the use of that AC. I guess finally, what are your views on the direct-to-consumer model in general? Because you know a lot of people have said the pandemic is flipped it upside down, depending on what industry you're in. You know, obviously e-commerce is on the rise. Has the pandemic changed the way your business model would have run if if the pandemic never happened? I think this really depends on the product category. Yeah, air conditioners in particular, though. For air conditioners, not really. I mean, our view on this is D2C is one channel. It means you sell a product on your website. You know, for air conditioning, that's, you know, 50% of people are buying them in, in retail. And so if we want to be a big brand, which we obviously do, we need to be available where people are shopping for these things. So, you know, that means Amazon, it means big retail, it means like specific HVAC distributors in and around the tri-state area. And, and, and obviously, you know, it means selling on, on our website. But yeah, I mean, COVID hasn't changed our strategy there. And that's it this week. If you've got any questions, comments, or feedback about anything at all, you can reach me at daniel at couriermedia.co. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. The Curry Weekly is back again next week.